Step up to a Nordic Track treadmill with iFit. iFit controls speed, incline, and decline, meaning that as an on-screen trainer leads you through a global or studio workout, the machine automatically mimics the changing terrain or adjusts the speed to the trainer's cues without you having to touch anything. Explore Nordic Track treadmills at nordictrack.com. Welcome to AMR Trains, a podcast focusing on training and racing for endurance events. I'm Dimity McDowell, co-founder of Another Mother Runner. Today, you guys are in for a fun ride as I talk to Sonia Wick. If you've watched the world's toughest race, Eco Challenge Fiji, you know that Sonia, you know Sonia as the captain of Team Iron Cowboy, a team of Ironman athletes who had minimal experience in adventure racing prior to going to Fiji. Um, Before she took on that race, though, a 418-mile whopper that included trekking, rock climbing, mountain biking, sailing, and a bunch of other adventures, Sonia was a top amateur triathlete who finished 18 Ironmans, and one of her top results was finishing second in her age group in Kona. Um, I watched the world's toughest race with with Ben, my 14-year-old son, and I loved Sonia's attitude, or at least the edited version of it. So hopefully it wasn't too wrong, Sonia. Um, Her positivity, problem-solving skills, and perspective made her seem like an ideal teammate and a great interview. So welcome, Sonia. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited that you asked me to come on and to talk to your people and, and be a voice inside of your network. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you for asking me. Oh, you're so welcome. Well, I definitely want to touch on um, helping our listeners find adventures in their own lives during the pandemic and the importance of mental health. But, but first, let's hear a little bit about you. And then, of course, we've got to hear about Fiji. So <laughs> give us, a, you know, tell us a little bit about your background beyond what I just shared and, and kind of were you athletic growing up? And Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. I mean, I ran in high school um, and I ran, I ran cross country and track. And I grew up kind of always seeing myself as um, like an outdoor girl. Like I like to be dirty. I ran around a lot with the dog. I'm an only child. So I was always going on these little adventures around our house, sometimes with my roller skates on, usually with a dog in tow, maybe a cat following. Um, So I did, I've always had this kind of wandering and adventurous kind of feeling inside of myself. Um, And in 2005, I had my daughter, Annie, and I was fairly young. I was like, I think I was 26 when I had Annie. I just turned 26. And about a year after having Annie, like so many moms are in this place, as you know, as your listeners um, can identify with. I was about a year after having Annie. I remember looking in the mirror and having that moment that was like, I think I'm adventurous and I think I'm outdoorsy and I think I like to hike and camp and backpack, but the woman I'm seeing in the mirror is not that woman. Like just this realization that the woman I see in the mirror is um, she's at home. She's dealing with naps and messes and trying to breastfeed and she's eating a lot and she's watching a lot of television. And it was like this huge moment for me that there was just this departure between how I self-identified but and who I saw in the mirror. And that just lit a thing in me. And the next day I remember going down to the garage and looking through the garage and I found my husband's old mountain bike and I dragged it out and he's six foot four. So I had to drop the seat all the way down and uh, I get on the mountain bike. I bought one of those kid hauling trailers and hooked it up to his mountain bike. And we started going on these adventures together. And Annie got a lot calmer because she likes to be moving at, at at that time as a baby. And that really, those adventures that we started having are what set the stage for where my life ended up going, which was biking turned into weight loss, biking plus weight loss turned into running, biking weight loss running turned into wanting to learn how to swim. I didn't never learn how to swim. Oh, wow. And then I got to do my first triathlon. So yeah, I learned as an adult at 27 years old, how to swim for the first time. And it was because I had the other two sports and I thought, well, if I could learn the third one, I could complete a triathlon. And I completed my first one. And I remember like getting Annie in my arms after I crossed the finish line and looking at her and looking at what I had just done and feeling like, oh my gosh, here I am again. Like here I am, but here I am even 
better and more lit up and more excited. And I know a lot of people feel that way when they do their first races and they just get that adrenaline rush and that positivity inside of your, your self-identity. And that's what lit me and set me off. And so one triathlon turned into more shorter ones, turned into longer ones. And in 2009, I did my first Ironman and I missed qualifying for Kona by one place. Oh, gee. And that just lit me up. I was like, I want to qualify for Kona so bad. When you miss something by one place, you're like, that's all you want in the world. And um, that led me on this huge journey of trying to qualify for Kona. I qualified for Kona my first time, and then I wanted to win Kona. And so I went on this huge five-year path of self-exploration and fitness and coaching others and just really in changing my lifestyle and bringing Annie along with that lifestyle um, till I kind of, you know, ran the full gamut of it and ended up second in Kona in 2014, which felt like first, honestly, by well, that time. On your blog, you said that it was just like, basically like three inches of a step on the podium and you got a, like a smaller bowl. Exactly. Yeah. But like, honestly, like I'm with you, like good, yeah. enough, right? Good enough. Good <laughs> enough. And I felt inside of me, like, I don't think three inches higher in a slightly bigger bowl is going to get me anything more than I just received inside myself. Um, and, and yeah, that was, you know, I won Ironman like Tahoe overall. They didn't have a pro field one year. And so I actually like broke the tape and sprayed the champagne. And so I did all these things in the sport, but I really just in the mirror, didn't know how to swim was, was barely able to run because I was heavy and just, it was so hard to run when I was heavy and I, I just one step at a time through like excitement and adventure kind of got myself to a whole different place. Wow. Wow. Well, so we're going to rewind um, a little bit later and talk about um, kind of what happened after you won Kona, but let's go, let's go, let's fast forward to Fiji. So you guys were racing there in the fall of 2019. Is that right? Okay. September of 2019. Yep. Okay. And so tell us about your team, which was Iron Cowboy. You guys might know the team name came from James and I'm blanking on his Yeah, Lawrence. James Lawrence. Okay. So tell us a little bit about Iron Cowboy and how it came together. Yeah. So I was in this place in my life, which we can just, we can discuss in the future. I was in this place in my life where I wasn't doing anything. Um, and I was looking for that next Sonia, that next thing. And um, I remember I was only going on Facebook at that time one to two times a week for 30 seconds. I had this like game with Facebook that I would play. You only get one minute of my time a week. It comes in two sessions, 30 seconds long. So you better give me what you got. And one of those sessions, <laughs> Facebook delivered me the um, eco challenge is back. Here's the link and the application. And I remember watching eco challenge in the late nineties, early two thousands on like the discovery channel and seeing these women that were there was like leeches and jungle and they were on these teams with other people. And I remember always thinking those girls are amazing. I don't know how they do it, but I would love to do something like that. But then I, you know, that wasn't in the cards for me. So I see this now and I'm like, well, whoa, that sounds exciting. So I click on the link, watch the application. They do a video. It's got like all this past footage. And at the end of the video, it says, this is the race that eats Iron Man for breakfast. Oh. And I was like, Bear Grylls literally just called me out. Like Mark Burnett is literally saying, you can't do this, Sonia. And so immediately I said in my head, I've got to do this. I've got to apply. I have to find a group of Ironman athletes because that's how I'm going to apply. I'm going to say, hey, you said Ironman can't do this. Here's team, quote unquote, Ironman. Let us in. And um, the first person I thought of was James. I, I coached James for a period of time back in my Ironman heyday. And so he's always been a close friend. And so I just knew right away, like, I have to call James. He's got, I think, 96 Ironmans under his belt. And when he did the 50-50-50, he did 50 Ironmans in 50 days in 50 states. When he did that, that's kind of an expedition. It's, it's yeah. less an Ironman. And it's more like logistical team play, even though he was the main driver, like he had to, other people had to work with him. You know, I just felt like, he would be able to, not knowing all the skills you needed for the race, still be able to persevere if we could teach the skills. So I called him and asked if he was in, and he was in, and then he suggested um, that we bring in his two wingmen, which I thought was great because he already knows how to work well with them. And that's how we kind of progressed from there. 
Um, and our team came together and it was hilarious because there's 10 sports in the race and we didn't do most of them. We had zero experience. I had more than the guys. Um, so the guys had to really work on just getting competency in all of the disciplines. Whereas luckily I had a lot more past experience pre Ironman with whitewater rafting and backpacking and, um, map and compass navigation. So I naturally ended up taking um, a little bit of the lead on like steering the boat, navigating through the race, um, understanding kind of backpacking efficiency, treating water, you know, those sorts of things. Whereas the guys just getting them to understand like how to ascend and repel ropes, whitewater rafts, those were all new things for them that I had a little bit more competency. But now, we, now we've all got a lot of competency since. So how long did you have between them saying yes, Team Iron Cowboys in and when the race started? Yeah, so we applied the 26th of December, 2018. They let us know that we were in the race February 14th of 2019, and we raced September 10th of 2019. So we had about seven months. Okay, so you had a lot to pack in there. Yeah, we had uh, four certifications that ECO required because they obviously don't want someone on a ropes course that takes six hours to get through ascending if they don't know what they're doing. So we had to go get certifications done and official sign-offs by climbing guides. And that was on us to organize and, and make happen. Sure. Um, so yeah, there were kind of four of those. We had to do, we did a three-day swift water rescue uh, training course in Moab, Utah with a whitewater guide, just the four of us. And actually the five of us, because our, our tack Joe came along as well sure. and the whitewater guide. So yeah, there were a lot of competencies, whereas other teams who were more experienced, they had people who would just sign off on those and say, oh yeah, they know how to whitewater raft. But us, we had to learn how to whitewater raft to get signed off. That's cool. Well, and so you mentioned navigating, and that's one of the things that, in addition to being the captain, um, you were your team navigator, which that to me is incredibly impressive because, I mean, I just don't, you know, I can't find my way around the neighborhood, first of all, but second of all, you, I mean, you're sleeping two, maybe three hours a night if you're lucky, you know, your feet are wet. I mean, you are so incredibly uncomfortable and to be able to have that kind of very pinpoint focus on a map and lead your team. I mean, talk about that. Like, was yeah, it, it was so stressful. Um, and that was the, I knew I was the only girl that could do the job on our team. Like that was really clear, really quickly. I had learned to navigate with Map and Compass in 2018. So okay. I was only, I was very new navigator. Um, I had taken a few backpacking courses with Andrew Skirka, who's National Geographic Adventurer of the Year, like huge off-trail travel guy. And he taught me how to navigate with Map and Compass. And then on those trips that I did with him, I only navigated by map and compass and we did a lot of off trail work. So I had some good experience, but not in a race setting or anything like that. So I was really nervous about, you know, what would my maps look like? Usually when I'm using map and compass, like I, I make my own maps. And so I can put all the details that I can find out there in the world on them and I can pour over them for hours and days and weeks before a trip but I got my maps 10 minutes before the race started. And that was only my first section of maps. <laughs> wow. So it's akin to, um, it's a low level anxiety 24 hours a day when you're the navigator. It's, it's constantly looking around in your environment to make sure that you stay found because the whole, the whole way you don't get lost is you stay found. So that means you never take your eyes off the map. And you're looking around all the time to confirm that what you see in your environment is what you see on your map. So if the river bends, you're taking a, a compass bearing as the river bends. So you say, oh, the river just bent 30 degrees to the right. Does the river bend 30 degrees to the right on my map? So that like all those fine details on, on the bike, on the trekking, on the billy billies, on the rafting, um, everything kind of, you have to stay on it at all times, which sometimes is just really exhausting to keep being in and on the map and you're wet, you're tired, your map is wet, your map is tired. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a big, it was a big ask and one that I wasn't sure whether it would break me, honestly. Yeah. And what would that look like if it broke me? You know what? I wasn't going to get a reprieve. If I threw the map on the ground and said, I'm done, I can't navigate anymore. No one was going to pick it up and, and go with it. So that in and of itself just kind of helps you 
stay solid because you, you really have to be that role if you want to keep moving forward as a team. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that was very, that's very cool. Congratulations on doing that. <laughs> yeah. We did get lost though. I will say I was not perfect. <laughs> of course. Of course. I, I was a slow, like, I don't navigate as quickly as the experienced navigator. So sometimes I have to stop and look at times and I stress more. Well, I think all navigators stress out, but I stressed quite a bit in the race. So they kind of had to put up with a like mildly anxious Sonia for the entire race. But I was just so scared of getting lost. Well, and then we did get lost and that was scary. But you didn't get lost um, where they profiled you getting lost. Like it wasn't yeah. on, on Prime Series. So that means that it probably wasn't as bad as you maybe thought it it could have been right actually no not at all there were teams that got so lost that they get, it's all whether you've got a camera around you and it happens yes. so we got lost for 11 hours on the lake and yeah and the lake took most people like five hours and it took us 11 and a half oh. so we didn't get lost for 11 hours we got lost for six hours um but we i got us pretty pretty darn lost <laughs> at night in the middle of the night well, you, your team still finished to, um, or managed to finish 34th out of 44 teams that finished, right? But they were 60 right. started. So like a full third didn't even make it to the finish line. Yep. Did you expect that, um, that rate of attrition? And like, did you know how the other teams were doing while you guys were racing? Or were you kind of in your own little cowboy bubble for most of the day? Oh, no, we... It was a big party. It's at, in the back of the pack where we were, we were always like 12 to 24 hours ahead of the cutoffs. So it was like this comfortable place of like, don't go too much faster if it's going to make you have problems. But you, you know, you can kind of progress at your own rate is how we were like the pace was fine that we settled into to keep us ahead of the cutoffs. Um, and you make friends with all the teams that are around you because we aren't racing each other. The ones at the front are racing each other, but we're all supporting each other, trying to make sure we all make it through. Um, so you're around teams a lot of the time where you spend lots of hours alone, but teams may pass you and then you may pass them later. And at the camps, there were four camps in the race and because uh, they divide the race up into five chunks. Okay. And so when we rolled into a camp, that was where like, you know, 900 people are basically like at this camp because the production team is huge and there are helicopters landing and Bear Grylls is walking around and it's like this big, fun Fiji. There's Fijians everywhere and kids and dogs and you name it. And our support person basically sets up like a home base. So he had a tent and a lean-to and a little kitchen and we would roll in there and I would get a new set of maps and Joe would have to feed us and we would all just be exhausted and we would need sleep. So we'd like try to go down for sleep. I always pulled out the maps and I had to basically go through the guidebook for a couple hours and transfer all the coordinates, the UTM coordinates in the guidebook over to the map and figure out what we were doing. So that was another navigational, you know, sort of responsibility with this two hour chunk in camp. At least it took me two hours where I had to re-navigate everything. And then I would tell the boys, okay, we're going to be leaving here trekking and then the trek is going to lead to a sup and then the sup is going to lead to a mountain bike so that makes everyone know you have to take your mandatory gear for trekking and supping and mountain biking before we see camp again okay. and then let us know okay i think we're going to be out there for two and a half days so that lets everyone know how much food they need to pull so it's kind of like basically like five little expeditions broken up by these camps but you're all racing so how quickly you get through camp is obviously a factor too and in camp, there's this huge leaderboard that they posted. And so the first thing we would do when we rolled into camp was go look at the leaderboard and see what teams were out. Right away, you'd see who was out and we would all cry a bit and see where you were in the placings and where other teams that you had met along the way were doing, how they were doing. And it was a very positive thing. You know, I had friends who were racing in like third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh in that range. Okay. And so I was always looking at Team Thunderbolt because it's like twin girls on Team Thunderbolt and going, oh my gosh, the twins are doing so good. They're in sixth now. And, um, and then you look and see like, oh no, like the Able Ables, they're like DNF. And so you'd roll into Joe and be like, what happened, Joe? So we get all the stories of everything while we were recouping and getting ready for the next leg. It was super fun. Like the whole, that part was really cool. That's awesome. Well, so when you think back to that race last September, um, you know, what memory burns brightest for you? Oh my gosh, there's a few. Um, one that I don't, 
it burns bright because of the contrast. And I think humans are wired to really appreciate contrast, like black and white. We had this one section early on in the race. It was actually the first official or the first mountain bike leg that we did. And it was on roads. So we're on these super steep up and down gravel roads. And, you know, Team Iron Cowboy is stoked because we ride bikes. Like it may be mountain bikes, but we know how to ride bikes. So we're riding up and down these hills and we're excited. And we had had a full night's sleep because they had to close the course for rain. So we were kind of like jazzed and going good. And then we get, then it funnels into this single track and it had rained all night. And so the single track that we're on is now like shin deep mud. And this isn't even the mud. They, they didn't even show this section in the race. Oh, like you, yeah, no, they didn't show the section at all. So it was like single track through the jungle, climbing these huge hills, just carrying your bike, slipping down them, falling down them. Um, really tough. And it got to be the middle of the day and we're still doing this whole rigmarole. So it's getting hot and we're all muddy. I think Sean bonked at one point. We had to revive him. And um, so we were getting to just like, this is really hard. And on my map, it was hard to tell when we were going to pop out and be done. It was sort of one of those where you're like, I think we're getting close. I think we're getting close, but hard to tell. And finally, we pop out into this village. And the minute we pop out, it is a party, like a huge party. They took our bikes and were scrubbing them and washing them because they were like covered in mud. This woman put a baby in my arms and was like taking a selfie with me with this baby in my, and you know, I've been away from my family and I'm like, oh my gosh, a baby, I'm muddy. She gave me a coconut, I'm drinking coconut water. And this other woman comes by with a bowl of round golf ball sized donuts. She takes a donut, doesn't even ask and just puts it in my mouth. And I remember being like a lay around my neck. My bike is getting washed. There's a baby in my arm, a donut in my mouth. And the contrast between that and like 10 minutes prior of just being, you know, tired, dirty, exhausted, physically tired of just like pushing your bike through mud and worried and wondering and navigation. And then 10 minutes later, like, donut baby knowing where you are refreshed the whole like that that those differences happen quite a few times in Fiji and they were always moments that you just were like we rolled out of there and all of us were like we'll never forget that for the rest of our lives oh that's so and it's great that it's a I mean certainly of course you remember some of the physical stuff but I love that it's the emotions that you remember and that that contrast and how welcoming and the baby and the donut that's lovely that's a really nice story Sonia (laughs) <laughs> it's the truth. <laughs> so our conversation is going to continue right after this brief break. Some technology I can give or take. Our washer and dryer are two decades old. I think I have an iPhone 8. But when it comes to treadmills, newer is beyond nifty. Nordic Track treadmills with iFit interactive connected technology are life-changing. With a huge touchscreen, iFit transports you to an energetic studio workout class or stunning locations filmed in amazingly more than 40 countries across all seven continents. iFit offers up thousands of on-demand workouts from walking and hiking excursions up to a speed building intervals and everything in between. There are even yoga, boot camp, and cross-training sessions that have you hopping off the treadmill. New Zealand, Egypt, Patagonia, Easter Island, These are just some of the far-flung locales you can virtually visit via Nordic Track Treadmill with iFit. With a wide, high-definition touchscreen, you will almost think you are running in those places. I still practically feel like I have run in a waterfall and lake-filled national park in Croatia, thanks to my last session on a Nordic Track Treadmill with iFit. I'm eagerly waiting delivery of my own treadmill, and oh, the places I'll go. The technology is equally impressive. When the terrain on the screen climbs, the treadmill automatically raises. When the trail levels out, so does the well-cushioned tread. The speed adjusts all on its own. After hitting start, you let the treadmill make all the adjustments, no pushing buttons. If your motivation is fired up by competition, do one of the studio classes, even a live one, so you can see your stats on a leaderboard against other workout warriors. The possibilities are endless. To see what I'm talking about, head to nordictrack.com. That's N-O-R-D-I-C-T-R-A-C-K.com. See where you can go with a Nordic Track treadmill with iFit. Okay, Sonia, even if we weren't in the middle of this pandemic, 
it's easy for us to get caught up in a rut. You know, most of us are runners and mothers. So in the interest of time and efficiency, we tend to gravitate towards the same few routes, the same few workouts, same time of day, you know, not mixing it up too much. Um, can you give us an elevator pitch about why it's beneficial to add some adventure to your everyday life? Oh, yes. Maybe not an elevator pitch because I'm too <laughs> verbose. Um, COVID has, it's a fun suck. Like COVID has taken everything fun and it's left everything required, right? Still got to pay the mortgage, still got to do the work, still got to, you know, everything like required is still happening, but everything fun has pretty much been compromised. And it took me a while to kind of get on the other side of this. And I think it's why we're baking sourdough bread and we're cooking more and we're finding these sort of other things that are more family-based that can light us up. You know, for me, adventure is literally in my DNA. I'm not a routine person. I don't wake up and eat the same breakfast every day. I'm always kind of looking for the nuance in life. And it's how I'm hardwired. If I don't have that nuance every so often, I get really antsy and I get kind of in a funk. And I think from what I've come to understand is everyone has that desire, at least a little bit, for nuance and excitement. And right now we can't, we can't go see the latest movie. You know, we can't go have cocktails with our, our girlfriends at our favorite little bar down the street. Some of those ways that we just have patterned ourselves to get that nuance is, is just non-existent right now. And so we have to create nuance and creativity and stimulation for ourselves. And what I would say to your audience is start thinking out of the box. Things I've obviously sourdough bread is out there, but another thing I, I just bought a skateboard um, and I have been Instagramming my longboarding because when I was young, skaters were super cool and I never learned how to ride a skateboard. I thought it would kill myself. So we went ahead and bought a longboard. The whole family did. And we bought skater shoes. So we all have like vans and helmets and we go skate, we go skateboard. That's one thing. Like Roller skates are really in right now. Um, there are so many ways. Scuba diving lessons are still happening. I just noticed. I just looked them up. So I've just taken this as like, this is an opportunity to kind of go way out of the box in some areas that I would never get around to and kind of throw back to, well, what is that fun, young, creative silly, you only do it because it's fun thing. Like, do you need a BMX bike? Do you need to hit the bike park? Um, stand up paddleboarding is a thing. And you have a friend in your network that has a stand up paddleboard. I know everyone has a friend who has a stand up paddleboard. So there, I would say if you've been going on the same routes, doing the same things, and you're starting to wonder, like get bogged down by COVID and you're missing that nuance, like take it back to middle school. Like what were cool people in middle school doing? Learn how to fold notes in a funny way. Like write letters to your friends. It just find, for me, finding that bit of nuance that has that young and youthful creative side to it has been like game changing for me in COVID. Okay, so um, I love that, first of all. I think that, <laughs> but okay. And I have, I've actually thought myself because there's a lot of kids that ride skateboards in their neighborhood I'm like, but what does that look like? And all I can think of is broken collarbone, broken mm -hmm. elbows, like all that kind That's of right. stuff. So kind of, I mean, so are you like, how do you protect your, uh, you're obviously very agile and athletic, <laughs> but like, did, did that cross your mind at all or not really? Totally, totally. And then I'm like, wait, okay. So I break my wrist. Like there aren't any races. I can't do any races right now. So I need to save for my deductible, you know, the adult in me, but, but really, Think of a little kid down the street who's like, think of the 16-year-old boy who skates at the middle school all the time and is usually high. Like, yeah. he, if he can skate, I can skate. I think that's where I got to is yeah. you can take it, you can do something, and then you can literally just get into it. And you find out really quickly, like, oh, this is just a matter of practice. That's what I have found. Like, I start slow. I went to the elementary school where it's like a nice smooth blacktop. And I like put my foot on the skateboard and like took a step and stopped. And I was like, oh my gosh, I just rode the skateboard. I was so excited. And then it just turned into more. Also with the kids, like the kids do something that lets your kids be your teacher because they love it when they do something better than mom. 
Um, and, and Annie has been like, she's been so much better at the skateboard than mom. So we go out and I'm slower and she's faster and she loves that. So finding some of these things where the kids are better than you are um, and just even trying, even if you're horrible at it and you know, it's going to take you a lot longer, you're not going to be blazing down where you're going to break your collarbone. Like I don't go any faster than I can walk on my skateboard most of the time, but I'm still doing it and we're having fun and I will get faster because now I'm getting kind of, you know, into it. Better, but it's better. yeah I think we as parents like especially right now in COVID we are in this place of fear and we do jump to fear really quickly because we need to be careful um, to not contract COVID but we can probably take a few more risks like the ER departments are pretty well staffed right now and the probability you're going to end up there is a lot more slim than you think. Okay. Okay. Well, and I love that you started, like you said, you learned how to swim at 27. And then I think it was you, um, it was an interview, it was an interview with you and your teammates. So I'm not entirely sure. Was it to totally clear, but did you learn how to mountain bike right before Eco Challenge? Yes, I did. Oh, and I did. Yeah. Talk about that beginner mindset because I, oh my gosh, skateboarding is one thing. Cause I don't expect, you know, a 48 year mom to be great on a skateboard, but yeah. There is, especially if you are an endurance athlete, like there's a little bit of like, oh my gosh, everybody's looking at me. I'm doing it wrong. You know, so just talk about how you kind of get over the mental hurdles to, to learn a skill that you want to learn. Yeah. I will say that skateboarding, learning skateboard is easier than learning to mountain bike. I will just start right there. You okay. may not think that's true. I already ride bikes. I like had a cyclocross bike. Riding, riding mountain bikes is really scary. And I was not in... I'm curious um, about it compared to, I mean, a road bike or yeah. a cross bike. The scariest thing about mountain biking is that I've had, ex I have in my head experience where other people have hurt themselves. Like in my head, I had a friend who broke both her wrists when she got into mountain biking. So in my head, I was always like, I'm going to break both my wrists. I'm going to break both my wrists. Um, and what made it really scary for me was that I was having to learn for eco so I was already accepted into eco. That's when I was like, oh my gosh, I have to learn how to mountain bike. So every time I got to a place where I might fall down or fall over, I had this thing in my head that was like, I'm going to break my wrist and then I'm not going to be able to do eco. So I wanted to protect myself so that I could make it to the start line, but I had to not protect myself to actually learn this new sport. And that's why I think COVID is so cool because there's really not a lot of start lines that we're going to miss out on if we hurt ourselves right now. Like you can actually afford to hurt yourself you probably won't. And I didn't, I haven't in skateboarding and I didn't in mountain biking. Um, but just having that fear of like, boy, this could compromise something really, really big was scary to me. And then um, I did not have skills. And when you don't have skills and you're mountain biking, it's very scary because you don't feel stable on your bike. And so it took me, gosh, probably three months of riding and um, actually at the end, when I went to eco, I looked back on my Strava cause I had a little note in my Strava when I cried on the ride and I cried on 50% of my rides. <laughs> wow. And I'm not 50%. laughing. 50%. That's a lot. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a lot of crying yourself. Too. I would just get really scared. Sure. And when I get really scared, I would start shaking and crying. So, you know, I may look super tough in the show, but just know like all the mountain biking leading in, I cried on 50% of my rides. Um, so I had to kind of overcome that. And then once I went and got skills training, I went to a female mountain bike camp in, um, Mammoth mountain and it was ladies only. It was put on by Trek. They do this Trek women's dirt series and they take into account your experience. You could be super good and you can be brand new and they get you in these skills clinics and they really teach you. That's where I learned what I call Ninja Kitty. And Ninja Kitty is like Sonia on a mountain bike. It's my bike persona and it has uh, a form that I get into. Like when I'm Ninja Kitty, my elbows are at 90 degrees. I'm up over my handlebars. My feet are flat and level. My knees are out. There's this whole like physical position that I get into when I'm Ninja Kitty. But the Ninja Kitty is also a mindset. Like we're ready to go. We're going to stay stable. We're going to take, we're going to like, the skills are going to flow through Ninja Kitty and she's agile and she she can kind of like move and shake with the terrain and what needs to happen. And Ninja Kitty is okay with falling off her bike because Ninja Kitty has nine lives and she bounces right back. So uh, once I like went to the Trek camp and I developed this inner persona of Ninja Kitty, things got 
so much better. And now like Ninja Kitty has a lot of fun when she's on the mountain bike, whereas like Sonia Wick doesn't have a lot of time fun on the mountain bike. So as long as like Ninja Kitty's ready to show up, then um, yeah, now I ride, you know, I ride, I ride all the time now on my own, but I just make sure like to bring Ninja Kitty so that we have a fun time. That's so cool. That's so cool. Well, the other thing um, that uh, I discovered is that you hiked the John Muir Trail with Annie, your daughter you've talked about. She was 12 at the time. Um, so I think there are parents um, that, including myself, that entertain the idea of doing something like that. Um, I think it's super, it sounds really fun, but then I'm like, but would it be fun or would it just be frustrating, you know, with, yeah. with you know, so talk a little bit about that and how it went. Oh man. So first off, it was a blast times a thousand. Um, and I think it's one of those things where every kid is going to be different and you have to know your kid. And what I know about Annie is that oftentimes she's more mature than me. Um, <laughs> she's very go with the flow. She has a lot of natural ability as an athlete, both with speed and endurance. And so I knew if I could keep, and she's like, she's up for anything. She's always been up for anything. So when I brought it to her and said, Hey, do you want to hike the John Muir trail with me? It's, it's about 220 miles. It's going to take us somewhere between like 18 and 22 days to do it. Um, she was like, yeah, sure. Let's go. And so I put in for the permit and we got the golden ticket permit, the ideal from Yosemite to Mount Whitney. And, um, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is meant to be because only six people a day get that permit in the summer. And so we, we got one and, and from that point forward, Annie was just hundred percent in. I remember telling her, Annie, there's going to be bears. And she looked at me and she's like, that's okay, mom. Like, <laughs> you know, so kind of having this, like, we're going to do this together and I'm going to tell you my fears and you're going to tell me your fears. Um, and then my key and what I would tell any parents who are going to endeavor to do a backpacking trip with their kids is learn about ultralight backpacking and get the weight off your kids back. Okay. So Annie's pack weight, her base weight before, um, before water and food was 10 and a half pounds. Nice. And then my base weight was 19 pounds. So then we added food and at the beginning that would be heavier, but then obviously whittles down as we get closer to our resupplies, but just having a very like nimble and agile kid who doesn't have a lot of weight on her back. I mean, people were shocked at how minimal, um, our packs were compared to what they were carrying, but that was why I invested in education with Andrew Skirka because he's an expert at ultralight and he really taught me the ways of ultralight backpacking and so once I got Annie ultralight she had everything she needed because we had done a proper conditions assessment and yeah we were stinky sometimes but we swam in a lot of lakes along the way but we didn't have anything that we didn't need and we had ultralight in all of our gear that we did need so being fast and agile makes kids have a lot of fun um Annie didn't complain a single time on the trail not once one point I said to her, Annie, this is really hard. We had been climbing all day about, I think we had like 6,000 feet of climbing that day up to Muir Pass. We we're getting towards the top. So we had just been hiking uphill all day. And I said, Annie, and it was getting, air was getting thin. And Annie, this is really hard. And she turned around. She always hiked ahead of me. She turned around and she goes, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, yep. <laughs> that was it. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I love that you, your, your trail name you said was Cranberry because you got a UTI. Yep. Uh, and he's with Chipmunk, but it yep. would have been Starburst because that's what you pretty much lived on out there. That totally made that's you. Right. That's right. She, um, she rationed those Starbursts for the first bit of the trip. And then on day 15 was the first time she saw her dad. He did our resupply at day 15 and had to hike up this huge pass to get to us. And so we had been using our Garmin inReach to text him all the like juicy things we wanted him to bring, like root beer and Uncrustables and Starburst and beef jerky. And so he had brought a bit of everything for us to just like engorge ourselves with when we resupplied with him. And he bought her a Costco bag of Starburst for the last three days of the trip. So she left the last three days and she had this bumper crop of Starburst, <laughs> like this huge, like a Ziploc freezer bag full of Starburst. So the rest of those three days, every single person we saw on the trail, she would give them Starburst. And these people were so excited about Annie Starburst. We'd be at the top of a pass and she'd be handing out Starburst to everyone. It was super cute. I love that she shared them and, and spread the love. She's good like that. That's awesome. 
All right, so um, so let's change uh, topics a little bit to something a little bit more serious. So um, in yep. 2017, prior to Eco Challenge, um, you had what you described as a mental health event. Want to tell us kind of what happened? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a tough one, um, but I'm finding you know definitely through the show airing that I I'm not alone. So some of your your listeners might be able to identify with this. Um, in 2017, I was in a really interesting place in my life. So. In 2014, I had gotten second in Kona. And the day after Kona, when I had gotten second, I remember waking up and like my wooden bowl was on the nightstand next to me. Um, And I remember looking over and the first thought I had was that that wooden bowl came empty. And that's about how I felt. And that was a major like revelation and, and really why second felt like enough because I knew first wasn't, it was just gonna be another empty bowl. Like I was just going to get another empty bowl. And if I didn't find a way to feel satisfied inside, I thought that it would change me because I had been trying to win for five years straight. And so I really thought that winning was going to make me feel this sense of accomplishment that would be so thorough and complete that I would feel like, whew, like, I don't know. I just, that was it. And I think we do that as runners a lot. When I qualify for Boston, I will feel this, just this amazing thing or when I break three hours in the marathon or when I break four hours in the marathon, or when I break five hours in the marathon, but there's this external goal that we have that we think is going to somehow change our internal body. And the best thing that can ever happen to us is that we get everything we ever wanted and we wake up the next day because the next day is going to tell you whether what you really wanted got you what you really wanted. And for me, it didn't, I felt empty. The people who I was hoping would love me more or accept me more, didn't love me more or accept me more. Yeah. I'm just the same Sonia. And that was when I was like, wow, what now? What do you do with that? And, um, and so my thought was, okay, I'm going to start a coaching company. I had always coached athletes, but I'm going like, to go big. I'm going to share my knowledge. We're going to go hundreds of athletes. We're going to get assistant coaches at the yin-yang. It's going to be female-based. And so I launched into opening Rising Tide Triathlon Coaching. And it was horrible. Um, because basically I was like, I had just been through this process of finding out that chasing podiums doesn't really get it for you. So I turned around and was like, let me go teach people how to chase podiums. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, yeah. Right? And, and then also let me build a business that's about things like how many athletes we have, how much revenue we have, how all these, now I've got these new podiums that are just entrepreneur podiums. And in order to hit them, that just requires pulling all-nighters and not training anymore. And so like all of my training went out the window I started working a lot, really going after building the business. And I I had always known that there were areas in the business that were going to be very hard for me. And for me, it's also, is always people's feedback. When Mm -hmm. I get feedback, I, part of why I'm a single sport endurance athlete is because I don't have to deal with anyone's feedback. I can go for a run and I can get fast and I can get accomplishment without anyone ever having to approve of that. But the business was different. And so as things progressed, what I was figuring out was that the feedback was causing me a lot of emotional pain. And I started having panic attacks because I just hadn't processed a lot of stuff in my life around feedback and how to handle it honestly, and how to know who's to listen to and who's not to listen to and to how to objectively um, deal with it. And I had a really bad day in the business that involved a lot of feedback. I was having to do some damage control. I had made some changes people didn't like. And so I like the, the hens were clucking. Everyone was kind of doing what we can do inside of these coaching companies sometimes and get, um, we can get all talky and gossipy. And there's someone on the other side of that that has to feel that feedback and it's their business. And I was that person and couldn't handle it emotionally. So I started having that day, I had a series of panic attacks that were getting worse and worse and worse. And it culminated in a panic attack uh, in an auto body parking lot. And I couldn't get control, really bad panic attacks can feel very similar to a heart attack. You just aren't having a heart attack. And I um, hyperventilated myself into passing out in the Autobot parking lot. And they had to call 911 and I had to go to the ER. Wow. And when I kind of came out of that, I was just shattered. I couldn't imagine ever hearing anything from anyone again, like not a good job, not a bad job. I couldn't even imagine like talking to anyone on the phone or answering any email. I just broke. 
And that was really like the start of the low time. I, you would think that the rebuilding would come after that, but that was the start. And um, my husband at the time said, um, I cannot run your business and deal with you how you are right now. I'm, can I close your business? And I was like, close it. Like, I, I can't even look at my computer. So within a month, he closed it. And I had about four months where I didn't look at my phone or computer I had an old phone that had two phone numbers on it, my daughter and my husband's, and um, I had to heal. I had to get into therapy. I had a lot of depression. I had a fair amount of suicidal ideation during that time period that we had to be really careful with me and have good backup plans in place. And yeah, I first had to get out of crisis mode. I really had, my mental health had gone so far downhill that I had gotten into a big crisis mode. And so in that case with people, if they get help, You've got to back yourself out of crisis mode before you can even deal with why you got into crisis mode in the first place. So you had to get me out of that. And then we had to start dealing with why I got into it in the first place. And then after that had sorted out, then we had to go back to, okay, what are the foundations of mental health and how do we stay healthy moving forward? So there's just this kind of big process that has to happen to move from being in a place of crisis to moving forward in your life, knowing how to do that in a healthy way. And that's a long journey. And it's taken me, you know, years. I definitely can say I'm strong and there now. But yeah, it, it took a long time to bounce back from that. I'm curious, um, because Eco Challenge is a team of four, like, was feedback, like, are you very, are you still, like, talk about feedback and from your teammates, like, was it allowed? Was it not allowed? Like, kind of how did you put that mentally in your head? Yeah, it was tough. I was definitely the the main person on our team that was struggling the most. <laughs> okay. I would say I had the, I had, I had the most response, maybe not the most, but I had a lot of responsibility probably beyond what I felt capable for. And I struggled with that responsibility because it was all so new. So there were a lot of moments in the race where the boys had to literally like, I guess they would probably say manage me. Um, to me, it was like, I, I needed to be able to um, emote in the race and I needed to be able to cry at times or say this is really hard or kind of have a meltdown. And then they, I needed their support to let me have that, let me do that. And then kind of be like, okay, let's get back on it. And there were times when they had to pump up a paddleboard for me or, you know, they had to like go fill my bladder and make sure it had electrolytes in it because I clearly wasn't eating or drinking because I was stressing about navigating and steering and sailing and da 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 so there were times when I really neglected taking care of myself because I was taking care of the team and then that would implode sure. <laughs> and then the team would have to now take care of me to get me back so that I could then take care of the team. And uh, I was the one who went on that kind of up and down, bouncy, bouncy more than the other three guys. They were pretty stable through the race and like jovial and we probably laughed more than any other team um, and kind of kept the vibe really high while I kind of went through these cycles of up and down with the responsibility and the self-care. So, you know, lucky that we all had what I kind of now refer to as expedition mindset. An expedition mindset is like, look, you may have a grievance, but now is not the time. Now is the time to just keep moving forward together. And the boys were really great that, you know, no grievances were really aired out there at the time. We just focused on how can we get to the next checkpoint? How can we get Sonia back up and going and, and keeping, keeping moving? Oh, good, good. And I'm curious, um, my last question for you. So other than skateboarding... And, you know, um, I saw some good pictures of you out paddling out on the river, that kind of thing. Like, how are you taking care of yourself mentally for the next, however long this is going to last? Because there is that's no right. line right now. Right. And that's, like you said, it's hard. It's, it's a fun suck. It's all that. And when you know that you are mentally fragile, it's almost like, oh my gosh, I just feel, you know, am I going to break today? You know? Yes. Yep. So I have four Yes. I have like four foundations of mental health that, that I are my four little cornerstones. Okay. And this actually came from my primary care doc um, when we were discussing medication and um, for anxiety, which I had never been on. And so we had this great discussion about medication and, and what medications are out there. And, you know, there's, there's different options and this is a medical discussion you can have, but I have this great PCP. And she said, well, are you meditating? And I'm like, yes, like I am. I am meditating every day. Okay. Are you sleeping? Like, yes, I'm sleeping. Are you exercising um, at a level that is healthy? 
<laughs> because for most people, that's like, no, I'm not exercising. So you need to exercise at a level that's healthy. But for some of us, us endurance athletes, we're over-exercising. So being asked, are you exercising at a level that's healthy actually means taking down your exercise. Sure. Yeah. So finding, the, are you exercising at a healthy level? And are you involved in talk therapy? So those are my four cornerstones. That's exercise, sleep, eight hours, meditation, and talk therapy. And those things I try to hit, you know, make sure I have my talk therapy weekly. And then the other three are daily. And if all of those things are going well, and I'm still experiencing symptoms, so that's anxiety, panic, dread, fear, um, like unable to kind of stop the thoughts, yeah. then we talk. And okay. then medication is like, we discuss it. Um, but as long as for me, it's been quite rare. And, but what I love about those foundations and what really like struck the light bulb for me is that so in, in physical health, it's really easy for us to say, I'm sleeping well, I'm eating well, da, 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 I'm doing these healthy things that I know are right. But I've got this lump in my breast, right? And we know like, oh, that's not normal. I need to go get that checked out. But we don't have that in mental health. We don't have like, okay, these are the healthy foundations of things we're trying to do. And if you're still experiencing symptoms on top of that, like the lump in your breast or the panic attack or the anxiety every time you wake up, then you need to seek attention. You need to get somebody to, to take a look at your situation. And they will tell you very quickly if you don't need help, right? You'll go get that breast exam and they'll be like, oh, this is like a, a nodule and these are never cancerous. Your doctor will tell you the same thing if you come in and you say, I'm doing this, this, and this, and I'm still experiencing symptoms. They'll talk about your symptoms and then they'll be able to say, oh yeah, like that's common or maybe try this or that. So that for me is something we're really missing in this, in this mental health sphere. We don't have parity between physical health and mental health. Like even in people's mindset, there's a huge stigma. But I want people to know there are things we can do preventatively and it doesn't mean it will stop everything, but it gives us a litmus test for when we need to seek additional treatment and we need to see someone. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm doing. I do my four cornerstones all day. And then, you know, I have a prescription if those aren't working and then we try that. And if that doesn't work, then we talk. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, Sonia, you are just a gem. This is so <laughs> I literally could like make this podcast two hours, except for I can't because I have a meeting in five minutes. Because so, <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's go back to Fiji now. I have more questions for you. Um, but congratulations on getting through that on, um, and on everything else you've done and including bringing mental health to, a, a, you know, keeping it in the focus, in the spotlight, because that is so important for all of us, um, especially during these times. Um, you have a podcast called uh, Tales of Toughness. Well, so we'll link to that in the show notes. We'll also link to your Instagram account. And um, so what, what adventures do you have cooked up between now and the end of the year? <laughs> I mean, I'm going on adventures every day. Yeah. Um, next, let's see, next week, not next week. Yeah, next week now I'm going to go up to Bend, Oregon, and I'm going to do a six-hour adventure race with Jen from Team Curl in the race and also Chelsea Magnus, who is the wife of Jason Magnus, who's the team captain for Bend Racing. Um, and a third woman named Renee, who's up there and has an adventure race. So we're putting a little girl squad together for that. Um, and yeah, for me, it's just what lights me up. So I'm looking for little adventures around all the time. If someone's got an adventure and they want me to join them, reach out on Instagram. Um, same with if you're having some struggles with your mental health or you want to hear more about my story. A lot of people have reached out via Instagram and, and direct messaged me and I respond to everything I hear. So if you have something I need to hear or you need to reach out, I just always say I'm, I'm out there, I'm available. I may have been on a TV show, but I'm still very approachable and accessible and I like to hear from people. Um, so always, always want people to know that's out there. Awesome. Thank you very much and good luck this weekend. Thank you. Take care.